If someone makes a comment to you along these lines in response to you, they say something like, you're, you're really not playing with a full deck, are you? <laughs> or they might say, uh, you're not really the sharpest knife in the drawer, are you? <laughs> or they might say, you're kind of off your rocker. You know that, don't you? Or the lights are on, but... And when someone describes you that way, what is it that they're really saying? And were they to put that expression or figure of speech in its most extreme, what might they say? Well, the title of today's message, and we're going to get right into it so that we can move along rapidly, but I've titled the message, the sermon this morning, The Message That Emancipates which means liberates, sets free, the message that emancipates, and the mad men who expound it. <laughs> and we are rapidly moving into a time in our society and our culture where more and more and more the witnesses of Christ will be, as Paul put it in another place, fools for Christ. I remember hearing a pastor years ago say, tell his story of his conversion and the Lord used the most unlikely person and the person themselves was quite eccentric but he was in, a, in the inner city in a city, one of the cities of California and he, as he was walking down the street there was a man coming toward him with a sign. It was one of those sandwich signs that you wear over your neck. It has a front and it has a back and on the front of it, it said, I am a fool for Christ. And he thought, yeah, you kind of look like one. And as he walked by this man and he got a half a block down the road, he kept thinking about him and he turned around and looked. And on the back side of the sign, it asked the question, whose fool are you? Well, today we're coming to a text of scripture where we find the Apostle Paul being called just such. So I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, in your Bible this morning to the 26th chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 26. Now, it's, we're not going to cover the whole chapter because of time, but one of the things that I do want to do is give you just, just three minutes worth of background, not so much about Paul and where he's at in prison, the two years that he spent there, and all that's gone on with Paul. We could, you've read book, the book of Acts, and if you haven't, you can read from chapter 25 on through. But what I want you to understand is who it is that Paul is going to be talking to and some of the background of these people. So just let your Bible rest on your lap at chapter 26 of Acts and listen to this historian, this historian's representation of the people that Paul finds himself surrounded with. And here we go. King Agrippa II was the latest of the Herod dynasty, the last of the Herods to meddle with Christ and his followers. His great-grandfather was the King Herod who had feared the birth of the Christ child and murdered the male children around the vicinity of Bethlehem. You remember that. 
The granduncle of Agrippa II had murdered John the Baptist, and his father, Agrippa I, had executed James and put Peter in prison, and then later that particular Agrippa was eaten with worms as punishment for allowing the people to worship him as though he were a deity. With Agrippa was also Bernice, his sister. Listen carefully. His sister, who was one year younger. She had once been engaged to Marcus, a nephew of the philosopher Philo. Then she married her uncle, Herod, king of Chalcis, but now she was living incestuously with her full-blood brother Agrippa. So notorious was her conduct that when she later became, she later became the Emperor Titus's mistress. He had to send her away because of the moral outcry of pagan Rome. Agrippa, uh, she was bad. <laughs> Not one you want to bring home to meet the parents, guys. Agrippa and Bernice were a sick, sin-infested couple. But to make matters worse, even more outrageous, Rome considered Agrippa an authority, an expert on Jewish religion. Because he was a Herod, he was appointed curator of the temple and thus had the power to appoint the high priest each year to administer the temple treasury. Festus, whom we will meet in the chapter, Festus was elated at the appearance of Agrippa and his willingness to interview Paul because Festus could not receive expert advice. He could now receive expert advice, excuse me, on what to write to Rome about this particular prisoner. End of quote. And by the way, as this chapter begins, it begins with them coming in these dignitaries, these high up people, and it says they came in with great pomp. And the, the word that we get, the word translated here is actually the word fantasia in the Greek from which we derive our English word fantasy. So I find that interesting that Dr. Luke cho chose to say these came in and Paul was gonna be allowed to state his case before them uh, from this Caesarea prison before appealing to Rome and finding himself on a voyage to Rome to stand before Caesar of the Roman Empire. But I found that interesting as Dr. Luke chooses very carefully, they come walking in in fantasy, in pomp. Okay, so that sets the stage and these are the people Paul's gonna be speaking before. So Paul is placed at the center, he stands there and we know from the chapter he is standing before them in chains. He's in chains. And at the chapter begins, Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. And I find it interesting, as you work down through the chapter, for instance, in verse 2, it says, in regard to all the things which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today. So he addresses eye to eye King Agrippa, the one we just learned about. 
And as you move through the chapter, verse 7, it, he says, uh, in fact, verse uh, 6, it says, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which the 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, now he's addressing Agrippa again, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. And then he says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? And as you move through the chapter, you'll find that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is God's great exclamation point to the perfection and acceptability of his work on the cross as he achieved redemption for his people, as he accomplished all of that, the resurrection of Christ is central throughout this chapter. Now, this is all introductory. I'm just getting, we're coming to the point here. First, what is the message that emancipates? How is this message depicted by Paul? How does he express it? And so when we come down to verse 12, if you'll glance at that, he has given now his testimony of what happened to him. He says to King Agrippa and to Festus and Bernice and all the rest that were gathered, he says, while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And then Paul says, here is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ said to me was my commission. And I would say to all of us as his witnesses, to all of us who are in a long line of what we would call madmen and mad women, and even more so in the culture that we now live in, and the trends all around us on every side, we are going to increasingly become like madmen. That's how they will perceive us. Before I read these verses, I want to, well, no, let's do this. Look at, concentrate on verse 18. I just want to unpack it just a little bit. Once in a while, even in a narrative section of scripture, like the book of Acts, which is historic narrative, we find a verse that is so pregnant, so loaded, that we have to pause and unpack it a little bit. So look there at verse, look at verse 18. Here is Christ's own words to Paul, to Saul, and and what his mission would be and what all witnesses of Christ really have as their goal. Look at verse 18. 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Verse 18 answers this question. What is the message that emancipates? What's the message that emancipated and freed you and made you a new creation, made you alive in Christ, made you one who was now in living union with the risen Christ? What is the message that does that for you, that emancipates you? Well, first, it's a message that tells us that God will open your eyes. That's the very first thing we see, to open their eyes. That comes to us. You know how our eyes are open, don't you? God, the Holy Spirit, uses revelation, the Word of God. He uses the gospel of God. He uses the truth of the word, which we call revelation, because this is not a book that we came up with or that we manufactured, speaking of man. It's a book that came from the heart and mind of God. And his truth is here before us. And so it's revelation that opens the eyes. What does that imply about the condition of mankind? What does it imply about you before you came to faith in Christ? You were blind, right? So that's the first. God will open your eyes. Secondly, God will turn you from darkness. Look there again at verse 18. Not only to open their eyes, but so that they may turn. And the word turn is the idea that through the revelation of the gospel, there is a work that God does in our hearts which we call repentance. And that's to turn or to turn around and come back to faith in Christ from darkness to light. And by the way, when we use this language, we get used to it. Now, this is spiritual truth. When I think about my soul or think about your soul, It isn't as though darkness is over here and light's over here as though it were physical and somehow I could turn from darkness to light. Where is the light? Where do I turn? How does that happen inside me? How do I go from living in the darkness and the darkness being the prominent factor of my life, how do I go from that and turn. Turn which way? Up? Should I turn up? Should I turn down? To the left? To the right? How do I turn? Well, it's not. even though I go through that act and we can attribute that the saved person has turned, repented, and turned from darkness to light, really what's happened is that God has invaded our souls with his own presence and light. That's what happens. And so 2 Corinthians um, chapter 4, verse 6 says, God who said at the beginning, Genesis 1-1 and the whole creation, God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. And so it's God who shines into us. And so this, this powerful work that the Holy Spirit does that reunites us to God, opening our eyes and turning us from darkness, repentance. Number three, as we unpack verse 18, not only does God open our eyes and turn us from darkness, but he also rescues us from slavery. Look at the verse again. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. You see, most people don't know. In fact, we didn't know until we came to Christ what a monster we were serving. We didn't know what domination the evil one had over us. We had no clue what an awful tyrant and monster he was until God delivers us, rescues us from the slavery to him. And that's the idea there, that we would turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Fourthly, that God will forgive your sins. So we have revelation, repentance, and redemption, which is rescue. And now we have restoration, that God would forgive your sins, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That is such a just unspeakable blessing. It's not the only blessing of the gospel, but aren't you glad there's forgiveness? Oh, man. Wow. And not just a partial forgiveness. God doesn't deal with partials. When the blood of Christ was shed on the cross and he gave himself in our stead and he substituted himself in our place, intercepting for us the very wrath and judgment of God so that he himself, being sinless, would offer himself up to God. In doing so, he now can grant to the repentant sinner who trusts in Christ all of his perfect righteousness. And, and that's the positive side of forgiveness. If I'm only forgiven, then I'm just reduced back to zero. And then about two hours from now, I'm in trouble again, right? But no, God says, no, I don't replace it with a, with a clean slate so that now we'll start keeping the tab on your failings, Tony. No, God says, I replace the sin and the unrighteousness with the perfect righteousness of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How rich are we? How rich? And that, that, that really brings us to the fifth one. And by the way, that's restoration for those of you that like the R's. We have revelation, repentance, redemption, and restoration, the forgiveness of sins. But number five, that God will adopt you into his family. That's so strongly implied because it says there that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified. An inheritance. What does that imply for us? Well, you study the New Testament and you study the doctrine of adoption and adoption, as Romans 8 tells us, that we are now heirs. Because of our union with Christ, that we're alive in him and he in us, we become those who are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 
How rich are we? That's your final R, by the way. How rich are you, believer? An heir of God. I mean, some of us out here may have had some wealthy parents or a wealthy grandfather or somebody who left us a fortune. But I'll tell you, that's just nothing. Nothing compared to the wealth and riches that belong to the child of God through union with Christ. Heirs of eternal, infinite riches and wealth for all eternity. So we have revelation, repentance, redemption, restoration, and the riches that are ours as those who inherit. What does 1 Peter 1 say? That we've been born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead unto an inheritance which is undefiled, unfading, enduring forever, right? Reserved in heaven for you who put your faith in Christ himself. Well, on the sixth one, when God summons you to faith in Christ and when we are used by him to be his madmen and mad women ministers of the gospel to share and bear witness and bear his name to the world, what is it that we call people to? Do we call them in through the gospel to get your act together? Straighten up your act. Quit those nasty habits. Quit watching this and listening to that and doing this and that. Is that what we do? What are they called to? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn entirely to him. Put all of your misplaced confidence behind you and put all of your faith and confidence in the risen living Christ who gave himself on Calvary's cross for us. And so this little verse, and it's so loaded, this little verse ends with an inheritance among those who are sanctified, set apart, made my own possession. God says, how? By faith in me. That's it, by faith. For the just, the righteous shall live by faith. The cry of the reformers the, the message throughout the scriptures, faith in the grace and mercy of God. So that's the message that emancipates. But what about us, brothers and sisters? What about us and, our, and God's call upon us to be the witnesses of Christ in a world that will consider us madmen? You say, Pastor, where do you get this madmen stuff? Well, Look down there at the end of Paul's address. And if you look there at verse, uh, let's say verse 22. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both the small and great. You got to have fun with your imagination. You got to picture Paul. He's standing chained and he's got, you can imagine what his robes and clothing, what condition they must be in. He's been two years in the Caesarean prison. And now he's marched in and stands before them in chains, and he's surrounded with great pomp, fantasy. And he's surrounded by soldiers and dignitaries and Bernice and Festus and Agrippa. And here he is. 
And it looks like he's on trial. And the strangest thing happens. The whole thing is flipped on its head. And everyone in the room is put on trial. Look at it. Look at verse 22. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to the small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And at that point, there's an overwhelming revival and everybody in the place is saved. <laughs> now look at verse 24. While, he actually interrupts Paul. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul, quite calmly, said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. If we're going to be witnesses of Christ, if we're going to shine for him and be the salt and light God's called us to be, we need to just anticipate that from time to time we're going to be looked upon just like this. Mad men and mad women. And I want to end with this illustration. Well, let me do this. Well, yeah, I'll give you the illustration first, but as I'm giving it to you, turn to John chapter 10, and that'll be the last verse we look at. But I want you to know you're in good company that it's really not a bad thing. It's a good, good thing to be a fool for Christ in a culture like this. Didn't Jesus say in uh, Luke 6, I believe it was, woe to you if all men speak well of you. For that's how they treated the false prophets that were before you. We're not trying to gain fans. We are not trying to water it down and tell people how to have their best life now. We have a mighty gospel of a living, risen Christ who calls and summons people back to the Lord and back to newness of life. Hey, Amos, it's all right, buddy. I'm just excited, pal. I love these truths. Amos is a good biblical name, isn't it? He was a tough prophet. Amos was. So as you're there in, in John 10, just let that rest for a second. But I think it was Oz Guinness, 40 years ago, I heard him give this illustration because he was talking about to be a witness for Christ, to not be ashamed of the gospel, knowing its power to save. As we go out and interact with people, like the man with the sandwich sign, we're fools for Christ. And he said, it's kind of like this. And then he told the story, and most of us can relate to it. He said, we are to be like a clown in the circus. But not just any clown, there's a particular clown. 
And he said, when I was a boy, I went to the circus in London, England, and there I watched the circus, and the two funniest characters in the whole thing were these two clowns. One was a tall clown, and the other one was a little short clown. And they ran around doing antics and stuff at, sort of in the, inter, in the intermission. Intermi what am I looking for? <laughs> the, the little transition between next acts, you know, between the elephants and the horses and the dogs that jump through hoops or the trapeze. But in between, as they reset up, these two clowns would come out. And their act was always funny. They're running around and stuff. But the big clown was kind of a bully. And every once in a while, he'd be interacting with the little clown, and then he would backhand the little clown. And the little clown would do the most amazing thing. He would flip backwards, do several, several somersaults, and then bounce right back up. And he, this would go on all throughout the circus, this little clown. And he said, that's what it is to be a witness for Christ. We share with somebody in hopes that they will have an open and receptive heart and mind, or that the seed sown will later bear fruit. But we witness and witness and witness. And when we get slapped, we just do a couple somersaults, jump back up, and keep on going. We don't let it get us down. We don't go home and tell the sad story. We don't go to prayer meeting and whine about how somebody was hostile towards me because of the gospel. Come on. This is what we're called to because we're in this world and not really of it. We're a bunch of amphibious creatures. To be in Christ is to be a new creation. Old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And if you're in Christ, you've now become amphibious. You can, you, you can breathe the air of heaven and listen to the voice of God through his word and live in the spirit of God and be alive in Christ. And at the same time, we're not called to go hide as we learned this morning in our class. We're not to go hide out or become monks. We're supposed to penetrate and engage the people in our society and culture. And it just gives fiber and strength to our spine gives flexibility to our witness when we're not afraid to get popped once in a while like the little clown. He just does a somersault, pops back up, and he keeps right on going. That's what we need. That kind of winsomeness, not of being afraid to share the message that emancipates and to be the mad men and mad women who expound it. Amen? Amen. Isn't that wonderful? to be in Christ. Incredible, incredible thing. Now, sometimes we're surrounded and outnumbered. And uh, years ago, years ago, our church here sent me to uh, at the pastor's uh, promise keeper event. It was in Atlanta, Georgia. And you got to hear this story because this is fun. They sent me to Atlanta, and it was a three-day event, and it was all pastors and missionaries from around the world. And there was about 30,000 of us in the Coliseum every day. And we, I, you know what? The funny thing, I was a mole. I was a, I was a mole when I was in Atlanta because I hardly saw the light of day. We got, arrived at night. We went to the hotel. We got directions. We went down the elevator in the hotel, got in the, underneath in the subway, Subwaited all the way to the Colosseum, came back out of it, and we're in the Colosseum. And every day we just were like moles. We went under the ground. So I didn't see much. 
But if you can imagine 30,000 men filtering in all at once to the subway, it was quite an event. And so on the final night, we had an extended time of worship. And here's 30,000 men singing, Be Thou My Vision. And holy, holy, holy. And we are just flying. I mean, we've had this wonderful time awestruck in the presence of God. And if you've ever heard 30,000 men singing to the Lord, you know what I'm talking about. So here we are. We all come filtering out. And we've got our briefcases, our satchels, you know, for taking notes and so on. And uh, we all come filtering down, and there's thousands of us in the subway. And Pastor Randy, who was with me, a friend, he was there. And everybody's just, I mean, there's, it's just hard to explain what a rich fellowship we had. And so Rand, uh, people are hugging and high-fiving and carrying on. And Pastor Randy, I'm watching this, Pastor Randy turns to this guy and just throws his arms around him and gives him a great big hug, thinking that it's a brother. He's got a suit on and he's got his satchel case with him. And Randy's just hugging him and telling him what a great time and how wonderful the Lord is. And he's carrying on. And uh, finally, the guy goes, or he's, Randy says, what did you think of it? Wasn't tonight incredible? And the guy goes, I'm just trying to get home from work. <laughs> I'm, I'm an accountant. I'm an accountant at a firm downtown. <laughs> this guy didn't know the Lord or anything, but for once, we had him out. We had him outnumbered and surrounded for a change. <laughs> but it's usually us that's in that scenario, surrounded and outnumbered by the unbelieving that don't know him yet, and we witness in hope. And when we get slapped. We do a somersault, spring back up, and we're good to go. Amen? Amen.